afternoon. Everybody hear me okay? You can all hear me okay? Okay. Um, welcome to the first breakout session of GMHC. Wasn't that a great plenary session that we just had? Um, if you weren't there, please go back and watch the recording because it really speaks directly to what we'll be speaking about in this session. Uh, let me start us off with prayer. Oh, God, thank you for uh, bringing us all here to the Global Missions Health Conference and to this particular breakout session. Uh, please speak to each of us what you want us to hear and help us to hear from each other. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this session is on case studies of applying principles of transformational development, which was just discussed in the plenary session, in community health evangelism. And I'm very happy to be here today and to uh, basically be the introductory part for the real meat of the session, which is with Christina and Greg Miller, who have been working in Malawi for the past six years, um, applying these principles. And I got to visit the, them in the beautiful country of Malawi a few years ago. Uh, so our objectives for this session, and uh, we did some teasers at the beginning while we were waiting for everyone to gather, are to explain community health evangelism, CHE concepts of transformational development and community-driven interventions, examine examples of CHE programs implemented in clinical and community settings, and then formulate uh, some CHE interventions within a simplified framework. And so I'm going to give us some definitions. Uh, Greg has a great story uh, that shows this in action, and Christina will work us through some case examples, take us through some case examples. Uh, so starting out with some definitions, what we're talking about in this session are concepts, principles, processes, and tools for community development uh, that, help, that we want to apply to the case studies um, from Greg and Christina's work. And the first definition we want to look at is transformational development. So those of you who came early, uh, someone wants to tell me what you wrote down as what might be a definition for transformational development. No. <laughs> if you want credit. <laughs> and whoever gets the best one gets to play foosball. No, we're just joking since we're in the youth room. Anyway, anybody want to tell me their definition? What'd you come up with? Thanks. Um, aligning goals and um, end game, if you will, with. Uh, with the people that you're trying to develop and uh, getting buy-in from them, cooperation and uh, participation in, in the goals to improve and develop toward the, the stated goal of the Okay. So uh, align, I'm going to try to repeat for the people online and the recording so that we can all hear. Thank you very much for being brave for the first person to answer. Uh, so he talked about aligning goals and processes and uh, the ways that we're doing things with the people that we're wanting to serve, engaging in the process uh, to reach our um, end game. Uh, so, yeah, that's actually kind of what community health evangelism is all about um, and asset-based community development, uh, which we'll talk about at one of my further slides. Uh, transformational development is a big concept. There are actually universities offering bachelor's and master's programs in transformational development, which was a new concept to me when I prepared for this uh, session. But it's really hard to find a concise definition. It's almost a moving target 
But it's because it looks at all of these things that Florence Mundy was just talking about in the plenary session. Um, so here are a couple definitions I found in literature. The first one is from the World Bank, so a more secular organization working in development. Uh, and they talk about transformational development as individual or series of interventions that support deep, systemic, and sustainable change with the potential for large-scale impact in an area of a major development challenge. So interventions that support deep, systemic, and sustainable change and have the potential for uh, scaling up and a large-scale impact. If we look at uh, community health evangelism, which I'll talk a little bit more about in our next slide, uh, but their definition is they talk about the biblical concept of transformation flowing from an intensely personal relationship with God. It is a complete regeneration of our being, thinking, and doing our being, thinking, and doing, that works itself out in our families and communities and is reflected in communities that are compassionate, just, and free. So our brave volunteer talked about what's our end game. Our end game, I think we could all agree, is communities that are compassionate, just, and free. And transformational development is a process that helps us to move toward that end game by looking at things that support deep, systemic, and sustainable change. Uh, so community health evangelism uh, is a strategy for transformational development and spirit, transformational physical and spiritual, so looking at that holistic, physical and spiritual integrated development and uh, community health evangelism is a strategy that's working around the world. Uh, so we see a CHE training in Texas on the top and a CHE training in Ghana on the bottom. And I realize that Texas is not its own country, <laughs> even though I do live there now, so it's hard for me to admit that. Uh, and CHE uh, equips communities to work together to identify their issues and mobilize their resources to address their local needs in a way that can be sustained and multiplied. Uh, so we're not doing, we're not demonstrating an entire CHE project or program in this session. First of all, it's a one-hour session, and second of all, development takes a long time. Uh, so we're pulling out the principles and showing how we can apply them step-by-step step in some great examples uh, from the Miller's work in Malawi. But if we look at this list of CHE core values, can we see how these values would lend themselves to transformational development, um, spiritual, holistic, physical, and spiritual sustainable change and growth over time? Um, and some of these uh, Florence just talked about in the plenary session, integration and holism. Uh, she started out being committed to the poor and marginalized, looking for long-term solutions, looking for local ownership and initiative. Uh, so that's, that's a huge part piece of the puzzle. Um, and then participatory learning, which we're trying to facilitate in a classroom setting. Uh, multiplications and movement, Christian service leadership, and conceptualization. So I think you'll see in the examples that these concepts need to be and can be applied to whatever concept you're, whatever context you're in. So a rural village in Malawi is going to look different than a hospital department, but we can still uh, interweave these principles and concepts and tools in that. Okay, here's our second definition that we asked you to think about at the beginning, community-driven interventions and programs. So who has a something written down for that or something in their mind for what might be a definition for that? So um, I've been exposed to some people that have talked about that's actually looking at what already exists in that community and um, people with skills that might be able to be developed to do that and creating things that are 
Okay, so creating things that are meaningful to the community by looking at the people in the community, what they want, what their skills are, and what resources they have, right? So pretty much the whole process is within the community, and the ownership is, dri is driven by the community. Uh, so again, here's an example. I think this is from the World Bank, or here's a definition from the World Bank, which is a great program that's supporting development all over the world, and it's good for us uh, Florence Mundi also talked about partnerships, right? It's good for us to be looking for ways that we can partner um, with other people that are doing this work around the world. So their definition is community-driven development is a modality of project design and delivery which transfers decision-making power and often financial and technical resources directly to communities or groups of end users. This looks a little bit different than going to do something for someone, right? It's, trans it's a transfer of power. It's being co-equals, um, as the plenary speaker said. Uh, and another tool that we've been that has been mentioned is, uh, and the last one that I'm going to define is asset-based community development. So this is kind of a, a different way of looking at it, or a deeper definition of things um, moving further into the processes and tools that we can apply. So if we look at the four words, if you know your ABCDs, if you look at asset-based community development, it almost defines itself, but does someone want to bravely define it for us? I'll take a shot. Thanks. So it, it's what already exists. So if they've got land and water and weather that would allow farming, if they've got um, some type of chickens or goats or something that that can, are there or could survive in that environment, but it's looking at, at what they have and then working from there. Yes, so it's looking at what already exists and what resources do we have and what assets do we have. And we'll see, thank you very much, and we'll see that those assets can be water, as, as you were saying, to people, to leaderships, to skills, so all different kinds of assets, but not focusing on what we lack, focusing on what we have, focusing on what's there that will help us to bring about the sustainable solutions to the challenges and the things that are lacking. So hopefully that sets a framework um, for the next few examples that we're going to go through uh, with Christina and Greg Miller and their work in Malawi. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks, Laura. All right. Um, I'm Greg. My wife, Christina, and I have been in Malawi for the last six years, like Laura said. Um, my wife is a medical doctor. I am a lecturer of Christian thought, so a little bit out of place here, but it works somehow. Um, some background for Malawi. Malawi is a small, landlocked uh, country in southeastern Africa. Um, historically and currently, Malawi is uh, financially very poor. Um, so Malawi has, at times, uh, some real need for relief work. It also has, at times, um, a perceived need for further resources from outside. Telling those two apart is often next to impossible. Um, Malawi also is, is a name 85% Christian. 85% of the population will identify as Christian. 
Um, that's important for a couple reasons uh, for context. One, uh, Christian leaders, pastors, have a lot of authority within the country. Uh, they can use that authority, authority for good. They can use it for less good, or they can basically do nothing with that authority. Um, beyond that, some of the Christian beliefs within the country, as with anywhere else in the world, are not always all that Christian. So, for instance, one of those beliefs that happens often, uh, as I am talking with students who want to be pastors or something, uh, or something, who want to be pastors, um, the conversation will go like this. I want to be a pastor, but I don't want to be a pastor in the village. Now, 85% of the population of Malawi lives in the village. But they will say, I don't want to be a pastor in the village because if I'm in the village, I'll be poor. And if I'm poor, it means God doesn't love me. Okay? Now, to be clear, that is not a biblically Christian idea. That is wrong. God loves us regardless of our financial state, regardless of our social status, regardless of anything else, God loves us because of who we are. Just because of who he created us to be. Um, that's important to always have in mind, but in particular for this talk, that's important because it leads to a worldview which can be uh, disastrous, fatalistic. Um, let me say it this way. If someone is poor within the village or anywhere else, and they believe they are poor because God does not love them, then the thought can go further. I can't do anything about being poor because God does not love me. I have no power over my situation. Anything I get, anything that comes to me is reliant upon outsiders. Okay? So, this is uh, our first story is about a training um, that took place with about 40 pastors and was the heart of the training was combating that worldview. Uh, the training did also talk about assets-based development. It talked about sustainability. It talked about identifying leaders within the community, working with the community, and it used some participatory participatory learning. Ooh, big word. Um, but at the heart of this training was just saying who we are in God, that God loves us because we are made in His image, and that we are called to love others. And I would say 80% of the time in this week-long training was spent relaying that message. At no point in the training were any specific how-tos given. There were no, this is how you go to building. There were no, this is how you get clean water. There were no, this is what you do for any project at all. It was just, God loves you, and we're called to love others. So, this story follows one of those pastors who went back to his community and here's a photo of the end of it. I'll give you the end, and then we'll talk a little bit of how he got there. But this is a brand new school building in his community. So, 
rather than guessing what he did, let me ask um, an easier question. If you were in a situation, say you were in a similar situation to him, what might be one of the first steps you take of getting to a solution or getting to something that would help your community? What's one of the first steps that you might take? Yeah, I know. Yeah, seeing who could help you. Okay, very good. Um, in this case, uh, one of the first things that usually um, you could do in an asset-based community development or something of that is seek out the leaders. Seek out the leaders of the community. Okay, so the leaders who can help you. And so that's what this pastor did. He sought out the other religious leaders, the other pastors in the village, because he's not the only one. And they got together and they said, yes, you know, we do want to do something for our community. And then they went to the local chief. So they sought another leader. And the local chief had a good um, understanding of his community. And so he kind of skipped a step. And instead of asking the community what they want, he said, I know what our community wants. They want a school. Our community's children have to walk miles, um, sometimes cannot walk miles because they have to cross a river. And during the rainy season, they can't cross that river to get to school. So he said, our community wants a school. Can you build us a school? Okay. Now they have a goal. They have some leaders. What next? And I'm just gonna, I'll use your response again. Find out who can help you. Who can help this pastor? Any ideas? Where do you find those resources? In the community. That's right. You don't need to go out. They don't need to find it elsewhere. They don't need the help of the missionary within the community. So they go to the community. Do you really want a school? Yes, we do. Okay, what can we do to get a school? They said, we can build bricks. We know how to do that. So the community built bricks. And then they had bricks. And then they decided, we need cement. How do we get cement? So they sold part of their crops. They bought the cement. So they built a foundation. They built four walls. They made a school, more than four walls. They made a school building with several rooms. Now they need a roof. That one's a bit harder. How do you think they got a roof? I would never have come up with this. They actually wrote to their local politician. Okay? It seems a bit out of their resource area, but that's their local politician. They use their local resource. They're not writing to someone they don't have a connection with. They're writing to their local resources. And the local politician said, you built your own building? I'll build you a roof. Oh, um, among this, the chief saw when they built their own bricks, the chief actually said, I have extra land. Take my land. Um, They got a roof. Now, what about the teacher? What do you do for a teacher? I, again, never would have guessed this. Because as I've been in Malawi, what I've heard is Malawi has a shortage of teachers. What I did not know is it has an even bigger shortage of school buildings. So if you have a school building, at the moment, 
You just ask for a teacher and they'll send you one. The community will house the teacher. They might even get some rent for housing the teacher because the teacher will get paid and they'll get a housing allowance. This is a picture of a community who came together and built itself a school. Got a teacher for their children. Made it so they can get there year-round. The community then asked the pastors, or one pastor in particular, can you be the overseer of this? Not responsible for everything, but just to kind of check in on it. If the wall gets broken, who's responsible? The community. They're the ones who built it. They're the ones who are sustaining it. The pastor's just there for a guiding hand. So why am I in this picture? I have no idea. I didn't find out that this building was being built till it was made. They called me and the, the local leader of the pastors to come see what they had accomplished. We were there for encouragement. We were there to say how awesome it is what they've done. And then to encourage it to, to share it to the villages next to them. Um, and I hope we gave encouragement. But I would say I definitely got encouragement from going there. Um, it was just a great experience to be a part of. Uh, and a great way of witnessing how much God can move and how much people can do when they know that they are loved by God. Um, Christina has a couple more examples of more medical uh, experiences within the hospital. Yeah, so Malawi has some of the highest number of non-government organizations, non-profits, per capita of any other country. I think Thailand passed it up last year, but any other country besides Thailand. And a lot of nonprofits, a lot of churches would hear this need and would build a school and hire a teacher and then run out of resources, run out of energy eventually, or when the walls fall down, then they're the ones that are in charge. So Greg and I love highlighting the story because we don't need to be there. Um, we, might have incur- we might have helped connect them with one original training, but, um, but they've done the rest. And, and that's why Greg and I are not great fundraisers. We're always telling people not to give us money. Um, all right, so just, just to come back to some teaching, those of you who are students and taking notes, this story talked about transformational development, and it talked about the assets-based community development, building their own bricks, local lo- ownership, long-term solutions, holism, um, and then Christians and Christian leaders serving. And um, we're not quite at the multiplication yet, but the participatory learning began in the beginning and hopefully is ongoing. All right. I'm going to tell you a couple medically related stories. Um, If you do not have a handout, find someone who does, who can share with you. Or I think we got about five left in the back. Um, We're getting into the uh, participatory part. I'm actually going to start out by telling you guys a story about a community clinic. This is the second story in your handout. It's called At a Village Health Center. You can read the first part, but I'll give you a, a brief overview so you don't have to. Um, this is a story of Village Health Center. Now, Malawi has one of the lowest doctor-to-patient ratios on the planet, about one doctor to 50,000 people. So most healthcare in Malawi is provided by clinical officers, 
and patient attendants who have one or two years of training after high school. Now, these are pretty impressive healthcare providers. They can do everything from C-sections and deliveries uh, to managing HIV, and that's on very little training following algorithms and, and usually a lot, very low resources. So that's the majority of people in Malawi, 85%, have no power, no running water, no paved roads to get to their, to their places where they live, their villages. So these community health centers are where most of the health care is given in Malawi. And this story that I want to tell you is about one of the health centers that was about half an hour from a mission hospital. This mission hospital had been there for 100 years and was training some of Malawi's first family medicine specialists. Um, but the partnership between the community health center and the hospital hadn't always been great. About two years before the story, residents had tried to go to the hospital, or had tried to go from the hospital to the community health center as part of their training. Um, but every time they showed up, there were so many patients, and the clinical officers were so overwhelmed, they basically just said, see, see all these patients. We have 100, 200 patients a day to see. Take 50 of them. Do the ultrasounds for us. See all the high blood pressure for us. Um, and so the, the residents got burnt out pretty quick. The residents felt like they couldn't help that much. Um, and on top of that, when the rains came and the rainy season made the roads impassable, the residents decided, oh, we, let's just not go this month, and then let's not go the next month. So coming to this, we wanted to try to restart this partnership, but some trust had been broken because it had been years since the residents had gone, and the residents had let, them, had let the health centers down and had felt burnt out. So that's a little bit of the setting, and when we arrived to try to rebuild this partnership to, to help train our residents in community health, but also to help these health centers that had catchment areas of 30, 40, 50,000 people with just a couple providers, um, we wanted to do something better this time, something sustainable. But when we sat down with the leaders of the clinic, the clinicians, they made a little bit of time to see us before clinic, the first thing they said to us is, look, we have barely any medications, we have barely any lab tests, we have a ton of patients, how are you going to help us? What are you going to bring us? I hope it's funding, I hope you can bring money from that mission hospital of yours. Um, so we were sitting down as a group, and as you'll see on your handout, we, we gave you a couple things. Um, so we're, we're going to talk about that, this, not only in understanding the setting and catalyzing transformations, but how to identify leaders, how to find priorities. Um, we helped you out a little bit by how to ask about leaders, but see these three blank places in the middle. Um, I want you guys to t uh, have about 30 seconds. Take a guess. What leaders might you identify in this setting? What priorities might be identified? And then what methods might we use to look at the assets? All right. Find a friend if you want help. Um, and please, uh, one or two people, think about answering, because otherwise the awkward silence will extend beyond 30 seconds. Ten seconds. Someone please think about taking a stab at the last column or it will be awkward. All right, let's bring it back. Let's have one or two people 
give some suggestions of what, what leaders might be identified in this setting. I'm feeling someone from this area. So it looks like there's um, a government leader, uh, healthcare team leader, and a community leader. Yeah. Um, good. Good categories. Um, anyone have any guesses what a community leader might look like in this setting? Good. And in Malawi, there are also community advisory boards. These are groups of people identified as leaders in their community who sit on a board to sort of direct this government clinic what they should do. And, and you caught me on that. I didn't explain that this was a government clinic. So this isn't, a mission, this isn't run by the mission hospital, but this is actually a clinic that the government um, oversees. So, okay, so we talked about community leaders. Anyone from this area want to take a stab at who some of the clinical leaders might be? So they don't actually have oversight of the clinic, but they can be a, a leader in this scenario. The residents themselves. Uh, you could go down every single person in this clinic, the, the laboratory technician, the nurses, the, um, the medical assistants, the clinicians. Uh, every person has a role in this clinic. Um, and then you can even go higher than that. There is a medical officer for the central region. He may only come to this clinic about once a year, but he is responsible for making sure there's medicine in this clinic. Um, okay. Any other thoughts we didn't cover? All right. Who has ideas about what priorities might be identified in this scenario? Medications or equipment for epidemic issues. Sure. Yeah. So medications and equipment, that's a big deal. In Malawi, most clinics will run out of medications before the end of the month. People will come and there will be nothing to give them. Epidemics, yes, this, this first story happened before COVID. Um, oh, the COVID stories, I could tell you. All right, one more. Perfect. Yeah, so these clinicians actually told us we've been trained over and over in HIV. Now, Malawi has a high rate of HIV, but these clinicians were trained many, many times a year in HIV. But more and more people in Malawi are getting diabetes and blood pressure. In fact, about one in three people have high blood pressure in Malawi, and about one in seven have diabetes. And these clinicians say, we've never been trained in this. In fact, we have two blood pressure medications, um, but we don't know what to do with them, and we don't have blood pressure cuffs. Um, and they run out before the end of the month, so we just send all our blood pressure cases to the mission hospital. And that kept the mission hospital doctors busy. Um, but then also, uh, people had diabetes. They had no way to check for diabetes. Uh, they had a glucometer, but the strips were always running out, and they, they didn't have any medications for diabetes. So we asked why. And they said that their clinic was listed as a low-level clinic because they didn't have any supervision. They didn't have anyone who could say that they could supervise the, the diagnosis and treatment of diabetes. So they weren't on the list to get these diabetes medications. So one of the beautiful things about this story is that the, the Malawian residents at this mission hospital developed WhatsApp groups. They developed communication with these clinicians. They started asking them to tell them about their most difficult cases, about their transfers. Um, they also said, hey, when can we come to teach? What teaching should we give? And then what came out of that, when they talked to the pharmacist and saw that they couldn't get diabetes medications, they said, we can give you the supervision you need. 
we can advocate with you uh, for the Ministry of Health so that the Ministry of Health will be giving you those medications and then we'll give you the algorithms. We'll show you what medications to get first, what signs to look for, and you can send them to us if you need testing. They even figured out that they could use the glucose strips um, that women who were pregnant used for urinalysis. And um, at least if someone didn't have glucose in their urine, they could guess that their sugar wasn't above 300. So they were using these unique ideas. And you'll see on the assets identified side, um, this group used everything they had at their disposal, even untrained Malawian medical students that came for one day every month. They turned that into a health fair. They had the medical students bring blood pressure cuffs, and they found out that 50% of people in this community who checked your blood pressure, if they were over 40, 50% had high blood pressure. If they were under 40, almost no one had high blood pressure. So the medical students left the blood pressure cups there, taught the people how to use them, and soon they had registries, soon they were running their own NCD clinic. So um, this is another situation of how what started out as, what are you going to give us? What are you going to supply us with? Turned into not only training local Malawians to be leaders in their own healthcare system, but also turned into leveraging the assets that were already there and helping the Mission Hospital work better with this clinic. We have a question. Can you explain how it went from that attitude to this whole WhatsApp groups and such? How did, what was the communication? How did that start up? Yeah, it was all in that first meeting. We were sitting around in a circle. We had two clinicians, one pharmacist, two residents, um, maybe a visiting student or resident, um, and myself. And when they said, what are you going to bring us, it was a lot of discussion and relationship building, affirming what they were already doing great, how amazing they were for seeing this many patients, um, and then talking to them about, okay, but if we, if we give this from the hospital, we don't want to let you down. We don't want to offend the government, and we don't want to let you down if we ever can't. So how can we work together? How can this be coming from you? And, and that created beautiful things. For example, the, the residents worked together with the clinicians to create these teachings in diet and, and how people could even manage blood pressure and diabetes with diet using uh, in the local language, using locally available food. So there was a bit of negotiation. And again, um, that was where I came in with someone who was very dedicated to not signing my residents up for more than they could handle. And... Um, Sometimes I tell that story, and a month later, I had almost the exact same conversation with a public health department in California. The exact same, what will you do for us? What will you bring us? What will your residents do for us? We're at our wit's end, and it had the exact same turnaround. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's not easy. It's by God's grace. But if you start out with the thinking of, if I build that school, it's going to be on me. Um, if, I, if I staff that clinic, it's going to be on me, uh, then you then you can start arriving at a different place. Um, okay. I have a story from a medical hospital. Uh, this is actually the same mission hospital, but about a year earlier. Um, I'll tell the story a bit quicker because I want to get into time for questions and time for maybe even dividing into groups and working through some cases. Uh, and I like sharing this story because I think a lot of doctors don't think that community health or assets-based community development can work in a hospital. So I wanted to share this story, and I want to use the same framework of understanding the setting, identifying leaders. This is the first one on your handout, and we didn't give you as much um, to work off of. So I'm going to tell you the beginning story. Um, while I'm telling you the story, think about those three empty spots, leaders identified, priorities identified, assets identified. Um, so this was, this was my first day at a mission hospital. We had just flown in about... Uh, 
two days before, moved our stuff. I thought I was going to go meet a couple people and then um, take the day off. But no, they put me in charge of the medical ward. (laughs) Never a good idea. There were maybe 30, 35 patients on the medical ward. I didn't know. I didn't have time to see them all. Oh, because, by the way, the um, the missionaries who had been there for a couple decades had just left, and, and the other missionaries were about to go on furlough. And um, two-thirds of the hospital staff had also quit. Not a very good culture at that time. Um, and the first few days on that medical ward were dark and dismal. Um, I didn't know of a single patient who got better and went home. Um, they either died or were transferred to the central hospital to deteriorate and die, or our team never got around to them because we were so busy on the really sick patients. So it was, it was not, not a pleasant time, but um, it was a good time for me to really put to practice some of these um, assets-based community development tools. So we gave you some ideas on questions to ask for identifying leaders, finding priorities, identifying assets. Um, Maybe one person want to take a guess what leaders might have been important for trying to make a change. Someone from back there. Someone from back there? Dang it, I need to work on my prophecy skills. Yes! Oh, okay. I... The ward matron in this hospital was amazing. She, um, she was in charge of the medical ward. Everyone from the hospital cleaners um, to the nurses to the nursing students, everyone. And she was amazing. Um, intelligent, uh, could stick to the rules, wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> if you could have one person for an intervention, you wanted her. So, um, so yeah. So the ward matron, excellent. Uh, we had residents, we had missionaries, and we had the hospital administration. And what we actually had in this hospital, which was unique, was they were trying to do quality improvement on every ward. Uh, They hadn't really gotten anything started yet, but they had QI committees. And they had already identified some things that that they were thinking of improving. So I'll go ahead and give you the next one. The priorities identified, they wanted to improve documentation. They wanted to improve... um, putting notes on every patient, having vital signs for every patient, being able to say um, whether a patient was improving or not. Um, so that brings us to uh, kind of what, where we go from there. So the next step in our little format is identifying assets. Any guess what assets came in handy in this situation? They have cell phones. They had cell phones? Uh, no. Okay, good question. So... There was, there was one computer, it was in my office, um, but I had a computer and a printer. And um, I had the ability to, um, to make a quick note for patient, a patient update note, and if people had ideas of any changes, I could make those changes, print it, take it to the clerk, and then they could print it, and we could start using the new changes in the notes. We made changes on notes almost every week for a three-month period. Uh, so anyway, there was one computer, we put it to use. All right, one more idea of what assets might have been in this situation that came in handy. You can look at assets from the last case if that helps. Any ideas from back of the room? Sure, sure, the families of patients. Yeah, so... um, so in this situation, there were so few nurses that they expected the patient families to be watching the patients and making sure that they were doing all right. 
So the patients would be, or so the patient's families could be the number one people saying, is this patient getting better? Is this patient getting worse? Could be reminding the nurses to do vital signs. Um, we put medical students to work again, uh, nursing students. We had medical students coming by once a month, and they had to do QI projects. So we had them do vital signs QI projects and documentation QI projects. We had um, nursing students. Sometimes the nursing students outnumbered all the other healthcare workers. So we had them get to work on vital signs. And um, it, was, it was really, oh, and another thing, tea time. Tea time was one of our greatest assets. Every Thursday, I would buy 40 little donuts, keep them in my office, and from about 10 to 12, everyone on the entire ward, from the cleaners to the doctors to the nurses, would stop in and have a cup of tea, and we would talk about how they were doing, how the ward was doing, just how things were doing. Learned so much over tea time. Anyway, so uh, the happy ending on this story is that after about three months, um, we were taking vital signs on 95% of the patients. We knew what patients were there. We had a patient list that we could pray over in the morning. Um, We had a quality improvement group that did about 75 improvements in one year. I wouldn't recommend that for an average hospital ward. (laughs) But but people were really into it. Everyone, um, from the people who changed the beds to the charge nurse, would give their two cents, and we would make those changes right away. And, And we were starting asking patients consent. And, um, and the, the clinicians were challenged to not just say what the symptom was, but what the diagnosis was, and then what the plan was for the patient. And we saw our mortality rates go down, um, go down by half, and then go down by one-third. Uh, at our worst, we were about 12 to 15% mortality, and at our best, we were about 3%. So patients lived. Uh, any doctors in the room that don't care about public health, like, our documentation was better, the patient outcomes were better. Um, but the, the thing that I love the most is the culture on this ward was better. It went from nobody wanting to work in the medical ward to everyone wanting to work in the medical ward. This is a picture from our first Christmas party. And uh, everyone from visitors to nursing students to nurses, some of the hospital cleaners who were about to retire had never been to Lake Malawi. This was their first time to the lake. And so we, um, we were a family. We were a group. We felt like there was nothing that we couldn't tackle. And pretty soon other wards in the hospital started asking us, um, Hey, can we use your notes? Hey, can you help us on our improvement projects? Hey, what um, what should we do with this? So this isn't a transformational development community story, which went from village to village, but this is a story how one ward in the hospital to the next can start to see transformation, transformation of culture, transformation of purpose. Um, so you'll see. So you heard a bit about the long-term solutions, the local ownership, um, not so much about participatory learning, but we told you from the beginning that um, we weren't going to tell you everything in every story. So I'm going to take a quick break here, tell you how to learn more. So CHE has a lot of different ways to have training. Uh, That's Community Health Evangelism, Global CHE Network. Uh, I strongly, strongly suggest at least going to a CHE vision seminar. I had mine four years ago with Dr. Laura Smelter. Uh, Her business cards are in the back. I think every missionary, no matter what your level of training is, should consider spending a half day learning about CHE, learning how to think differently about ownership and sustainability. If you're really into it, you can go to week-long training of trainers course. That's really experiential, can really teach you how to run some of these courses in the village. If you're really, really into it, there are CHE internships around the world where you can go and you can see these projects in person. Uh, For those of you who are medical, I would strongly recommend uh, fellowships. I did a two-year post-residency fellowship with Samaritan's Purse. Can't recommend it more highly. For two years, they pay all your expenses while you study under an experienced missionary doctor and kind of learn the missionary doctor you want to be. 
Um, I would also recommend preventive medicine. That's a one-year fellowship right now. You get your master's in public health. You learn how to take care of populations. Um, like we heard at the keynote, medical missions is evolving, and the more you can bring in expertise, the more you can think outside the box, the more you're going to be able to help large numbers of people. So um, that's what I would recommend. Global health, there are a lot of global health fellowships. Ask a lot of questions uh, before you sign up for one of those. Uh, and Laura and I and Greg, we're available. We can keep in touch after this. We have dinner after this, so there will be plenty of time for discussion. I can tell. Burning question in the back? Okay. Just deeply engaged. Thank you for that. Appreciate it. Um, here's some more toolkits and resources. Um, the CHE network is great. You can go online. That's how I found out that there were 13 CHE programs in my country. I had lived there for two years and had no idea. Um, now every year I call every CHE program that's in the country, and I try to figure out how we can network, how we can partner. That's how we found the guy who did our transformational development training. Um, and we're slowly bringing it to 300 churches in our area. Um, really recommend the books by Daniel Fountain, Let's Build Our Lives Together, Let's Restore Our Land. Never thought I would be doing agriculture and uh, <laughs> sustainability, uh, but food security is important. And my boss with the Christian Health Service Corps, Greg Seeger, he wrote the book When Healthcare Hurts, just came out with a new edition, also an ebook. Strongly, strongly recommend that as you're thinking about how to help people through healthcare without hurting. All right, we have 15 minutes. Um, I would say if there are any burning questions, we can take time for a question or two. And if there are not, maybe we could divide into some groups to work through one more story. Grace got a great story for you if there's time. Burning questions. Warm questions? More so. Oh, okay. Does the training, yeah, so the World Medical Mission is a two-year um, fellowship right after residency is finished, and it's a lengthy application process, so you need to sign up in your last year of residency. Um, if they accept you, they will invest in you like crazy. Um, oh, really? I don't know if they were talking about it. Why did they extend it from us? That's right, yeah. So you can also apply a couple years after residency, too. Basically, if you have a heart for service, you can convince them. Um, but, but, yeah, so they invest in you. Now, at this point, my husband and I have been to 13 missionary orientations or debriefings, and um, the World Medical Mission orientation was one of the greatest. And some of the people who spoke there, uh, Dr. Ritchie is speaking here. Um, now, we actually didn't hear about CHE until we joined the Christian Health Service Corps two years later. But the World Medical Mission, after they took, during the two years they were taking care of us, they taught us how to look for different long-term sending organizations. So when they connected us with the Christian Health Service Corps, that's when we learned about CHE. And that's when we really got passionate about this and started doing missions in Malawi differently. I can answer, too. The CHE internship is anywhere from a one-month to a six-month internship held in different places around the world. There's one in the Philippines. There was one in Ghana or, like, West Africa area. Um, and all of that information is usually on the Global Chain Network website that was on the last slide. Yep. Yes, and these slides should be available online. Um, we'll try to make sure, for at least for by tomorrow, that they are if they're not right now. Also online um, should be this handout. 
now, the good news for you guys, we knew we weren't going to get through too many of the cases on this handout, so we have a second handout with all the answers to it. Um, that's up at front. You can get it from us before you leave. And online, uh, there should be this handout, but all the white space is just white text with all the answers. We'll see how that works. All right. Gregory, you want to share one more story? Yeah, sometimes I like to say we're not even teaching how to fish. We are building sustainable fishing ponds. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that, that is a good question. That is unique to each story. Um, but I would say a large percentage of what we do in Malawi has to do with the pastors and having the pastors who really believe that the community has strength and that God is blessing them um, to share with their community what they have. So um, so pastors, when it can be, and when it's in the hospital, a lot of times just being honest and saying, look, we have to work with what we have because we can't guarantee more is coming. And isn't it better to work with what we have so that people aren't disappointed later when there's something and then there's not? Um, another big part of that question of how to get people to that point has to do with relationship. Um, one of the difficult things about uh, CHE as a process, or even transformational development as a process. Um, it said that in order to do a CHE program, you need at least two years before you even start a relationship. Um, you need a social capital. You need a, a relationship to buy into. Um, in Malawi, most trainings that people go to, they are paid to go to. Um, the training I spoke about with the pastors, um, there is no gifts, there is no payment, there is no allowances. In fact, the pastors had to bring um, the food for the training with them. They had to buy into the training. And the only way to get that to happen was to have a relationship. Um, some of the stories that Christina gave, uh, different settings, they didn't require that too long uh, year relationship, um, but there was still that involved. Anything else first? <laughs> okay, well, it's just a, a, just a quick introduction. I believe you have the story on your paper. Um, it starts off about hunger season. Um, in Malawi, uh, in the rural areas, rural areas especially, man, tongue-tied today, um, just before harvest, there is a season that they refer to as hunger season. Um, this is a time when, especially during, uh, in the area of the surrounding hospital, there are enough foreign doctors or other foreign workers that people come to the foreigners' houses, knock on their door, and ask for food. Um, as I said, there is a real need in Malawi for resources at times, and along with that need, there is a perceived need. 
as a foreigner and often even as a national, you cannot tell that difference. But as a foreigner, you don't know. Do the people really need this? What is, what is going on? What is the best way to help? And so missionaries often don't think it's their place to judge. They don't think it's their place to, to question. And so we had friends who gave to everyone who asked. And the first week, they had five people at their door, and they gave to five people. The second week, they had 20 people at their door, and they gave to 20 people. The third week, they opened up their door. They had 250 people lined up outside their door. They did not have resources to give to 250 people. So, what is a solution here? What is... Oh, oh, yeah, she'll take it. No, they're going to tell us. All right. So I want this side of the room to focus on this top part in your handout. The questions to ask, the methods to use for identifying leaders, finding priorities, and identifying assets. This side of the room, um, think about what sorts of leaders you would identify to help take care of a problem like this. Um, priorities that might be identified. Okay, that one might be easy. Um, and then assets that might be identified in this community. And I'm going to go ahead and try, I'm going to be asking you guys like this. And I'm only going to give you, can we do one minute? Two, two minutes. All right, you got two minutes. Um, grab a buddy if you want. Let's make it count. One minute left. I had it a little bit easier. Can I get one question to ask for how to go about identifying leaders? Come on, these guys had to come up with like assets and solutions. One question. No? 
Like, is there a university setting where they, they study agriculture, for example? Yeah. Is there, is like, local that knows the local? Yeah. So, so what's the what are what are local academics already doing to take care of hunger season? Right. Brilliant. Any other questions? Maybe something different. Yeah. Yeah. So um, most people in Malawi do grow their own fields ever since the first president required everyone to. So most most Malawians are subsistence farmers, but they always run out of food before the next harvest. Good questions. Okay, other questions that we might have asked would be, what have missionaries done before? Um, but the, the, first, the first question would be identifying leaders. So um, maybe what's the church doing? Um, who's at the hospital who helps with these things? All right. So under leaders identified key and mentioned there might be an advisory committee for the area, who's the ministry of health mm-hmm. for that area. Yeah, so it actually took us four years of agriculture training before someone decided to tell us that every community has a government-sponsored agricultural consultant. Now, some people don't trust them, and sometimes they don't actually live in the community, but there is an agricultural consultant in every community. All right, one other idea of a leader in this scenario who maybe could be identified. We ask a lot of questions. Um, Because it does not feel good. Someone knocks on your door, they're hungry, you have food, and you're like, if I give to you now, I'm going to have to give to everyone in your village later, and I'm going to be perpetuating the concept of hunger season. So that is a big question. We have dinner after this. We can talk more. (laughs) But in brief, asking a lot of questions, and every every missionary should have um, as many cultural ambassadors as they can have. This would be like the medical ward matron who's willing to tell you like it is, who's willing to tell you what's going on. So for us, that was some local pastors we worked with. For us, that was someone from the church who um, already had been in the community for 20 years. Um, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip a little bit um, because I'm, I'm going to go ahead and tell you guys uh, <laughs> some things we tried. We tried going to the church. We said, hey, we have 10 missionaries. We could have 100 bags of maize, but we don't know who's who. We don't know what to do. Um, can you guys as a church hand out to people? They said, nope, we have no one in the church we could trust to be honest with this and not just give to their local people. We said, okay. So we went to the hospital. I was working in a mission hospital. They had chaplains. The chaplains gave food to, to different people who were patients. We told the chaplains, we said, hey, can, we, um, can, can you guys help us with this? Can, can we direct people to you and you can identify who's who and you can give the, the food to people who come to you? And they said, yeah, sure, no problem. We said, okay, it's going to be a lot of people. They said, yeah, sure, no problem. We'll just hire people if we need to. It lasted half a day. And then the very chaplains who said, yeah, sure, no problem, secretly went to the hospital leadership and said, we need to shut this down. So they did. So so then what did we do? We got lucky. We found out that there was a Malawian-run nonprofit that had been working in 13 villages in our community um, for the last five to seven years. And this nonprofit had actually been started by a nurse who had gone, left about 10 years ago. She had tried starting one nonprofit for the disabled, found out it didn't work very well, <laughs> tried to start another one, very community-based nonprofit. Um, and she was gone, but this was still ongoing. They called it Alanafe, God with us. And this 
community group in 13 different communities, worked with the chiefs, worked with the disabled people, and um, brought food during hunger season, but also brought teaching about how um, blessings come from God. Like, this isn't just from someone outside, but this is God loves you, and your blessings come from God. They also taught people how to have gardens during the dry season, how to bring water to a place and irrigate it during the dry season. They taught people how to, how to care for livestock. So this was a group in the community that was already doing amazing things, and we were able to just come alongside them. They already knew people. They already had the connections. So it's true. We got lucky, um, and we, went, uh, we benefited from those who went before us. Um, but it's just an example that a lot of times there are a lot of things already going on, and if you're trying to meet all the needs yourself, you may be making more of a problem than you're fixing. So we are officially out of time, uh, but come get the handouts with all the answers from the front, and we have nowhere to go, so well, we're here for you. Come, come ask more questions, and let's have this be the beginning of discussion. I think Laura's cards are in the back, and do we have a... Email sign up? Okay. If you want to receive, Greg and I send out a monthly story of what's happening in our ministry every month. If you want to be on that update list, come see us. We'll get your email. Thank you much.